Morning Bridge. This is your first time here. Welcome. It is such a pleasure to be worshiping with you. Go ahead and do me a favor and fill out one of these bridge cards to let us know who you are and how we can reach out and say hi. Um, if you could all please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 13. 13. That's where we are. We are continuing on in the story of the book of Samuel. Last week, Pastor Brandon took us through the story of King Saul's crowning, his coronation. And today's story is going to continue on with King Saul, but it's going to focus on his reign, on his kingship. To summarize where we're going, I, I think it's fair to say that Saul's kingship was complicated. Complicated. Because if you were an Israelite living at that time, and if you had asked yourself, you know, has my life been better or worse since Saul became king? My guess is that most people at the time would have definitely said, yeah, yeah, sure. Because during Saul's reign, someone finally stood up to Israel's oppressors. Someone finally started fighting with them. And not only that, but Saul won massive military victories, one after another over these enemies. But Saul is complicated. He's complicated because what we're going to see in today's passage is that while a lot of people might have had a very positive view of Saul's reign, God was not pleased with Saul. God was not pleased with Saul. To understand why that is, there's just a little bit of recap that we have to look at back from the very beginning of Saul's story. I know I just asked you to turn to chapter 13, but if you could flip back just a few pages to chapter 10, we need to look at some important context for today's story. In this passage, Samuel has just anointed Saul as Israel's first king. And then in verse 5, Samuel says this to Saul. He says, After that, you shall come to Gibeoth Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. And then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what to do. It's a long passage, but what we just read, in essence, is a game plan. It's a game plan. It's the kind of thing you tell your football team or your sales department down in the huddle, up in the boardroom. Everyone wants to win, so gather around and listen. Here's the game plan. Here's what you do. Now go and do it. Execute. So what's, um, what's Samuel's game plan for Saul? Samuel tells Saul, go to this place. Go to this place where there's a bunch of Philistine soldiers. And then God's going to give you a sign. You're going to start prophesying by the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, not if, but when that happens, Saul, I want you to do what your hand finds to do. In other words, I want you to follow your gut. Do, do what you think you're supposed to do at that moment. And Saul, remember, this is key, God is with you. God is with you. 
And then Samuel tells him, now if you do that, I want you to wait. Wait for me for seven days and I'll come and I'll make some offerings and then I'll tell you what to do next. It's a simple game plan, really. The instruction manual isn't that complicated for Saul. It's go someplace, wait for the signal, follow your gut, and then wait. Anyone can do that. I could do that. You could do that. So Saul, he goes, he does the first step. He goes to this place where there's a bunch of Philistine soldiers, and sure enough, he gets the signal. He starts prophesying by the Holy Spirit, and then, and then Saul doesn't do anything. His gut tells him to do something, but he skips the second step. He chickens out, and instead Saul goes home, and he doesn't speak a word of this to anyone. So what was Saul supposed to do? What was his gut telling him? Well, based on what we're going to see today, Saul was supposed to fight with the Philistines. God sent one person, Saul, to personally take on the whole Philistine garrison. And as crazy as that sounds, I firmly believe that it would have been well with Saul if he had done it. It would have been possible because Samuel makes a point of saying to Saul, what? God is with you. Saul doesn't believe that. He doesn't trust that God was going to do something, so he backs out. Today in chapter 13, you can go ahead and flip back there now. Now in 13, Saul has an army. And with that army, Saul's decided he's finally got enough, enough with him to go back and finish what he started. He's going to finally take the fight to the Philistines. But crucially, Saul is not going to stick with God's game plan once again. Saul's going to go, he's going to do something, but when it comes time for the next step, when it comes time for Saul to wait, he won't. Saul's not going to obey God because as we're going to see, this is crucial, Saul doesn't trust God. Saul doesn't trust God. Saul has spiritual trust issues. If I could sum up what Saul should have done, it would be in the words of that old song, trust and obey. Trust and obey. There's no other way. But Saul does not trust and he doesn't obey. And this failure to trust and obey is going to have disastrous consequences for Saul. Folks, today's story is a tragedy. A tragedy about what happens when we don't trust and obey. So without further ado, let's dive in. Please stand for the reading of God's word from 1 Samuel 13, starting in verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, 
The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So our story begins with a great show of faith. Saul goes and does what God says. He goes to the garrison of the Philistines, and although he didn't do it right the first time, Saul finally does what his hand finds to do. He attacks the Philistines. Remember that Samuel told Saul that God was with him. So Saul, what does he do? He dismisses most of his troops until it's just him and his general Jonathan with just 3,000 soldiers between the two of them. He takes 2,000 guys and his general, Jonathan, takes 1,000. And against all odds, it's actually Jonathan's smaller force that is able to defeat the Philistines. It's a miraculous victory. It's totally crazy. Saul is at the top of his game, and so he calls out to the rest of his troops to come and finish the job. But then there's a wrinkle. There's something that happens. The Philistines, they turn around, and this time they come back in force. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore. They outnumber the Israelites by at least 10, 20 times. And not only were there more of them, they were much more prepared than the Israelites. These These days, if you call someone a Philistine, what does that mean? What does it mean if you call someone a Philistine? What you're doing is you're calling them a barbarian. You're saying they're uncultured, uncivilized, a little backwards. But in actuality, in the Bible, the Philistines had a highly advanced civilization. These were people who were, these were Silicon Valley people. They were were coastal elites, wealthy expats. They were powerful colonizers who had only recently shown up in the area of Palestine from the area of Greece. They had moved over. And so not only did these sophisticated Philistines have greater numbers, they had greater tech. Look down at verse 19. It tells us, Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. Imagine this whole nation of Israel. You're you're imagining armies and soldiers and tanks, but they're holding pitchforks and rakes. They're they're holding farm equipment right now. And they are up against the whole Philistine army who outnumbers them, and they all have swords. Israel has brought a knife to a gunfight. They are outnumbered 10 to 1. They're bringing, they stand no chance. They're a ragtag, motley crew, and this is an impossible situation. This is going to be ugly. And so the Israelites, they start deserting. They start skipping town. They're even leaving the country. And as we're told later on in the passage, some even go over to the Philistine side. So Saul is now up against the power like this with a tiny, terrified army that's only getting smaller and smaller. Morale is at an all-time low. What is Saul going to do? Remember, Saul knows what he's supposed to do. God gave Saul a game plan. 
His instructions were simple. Go to this place, do what your hand finds to do, fight with the Philistines. Check, done. All right, now what? Well, God said, wait. Wait, for seven days, wait. And then Samuel's gonna come and he's gonna offer sacrifices and he's gonna tell you what to do. And so Saul does that, he waits. He waits for seven days, except when the seventh day rolls around. Verse eight tells us that Samuel had not come and the people were scattering. God's game plan isn't working. (laughs) What's happening? Now what's Saul supposed to do? Saul's people have lost confidence in him. He's in a crisis of leadership. Yes, God just did something amazing. God did just defeat the Philistines, but what good is any of that now when the Philistines are back in full force and Saul doesn't have much of an army? Saul is desperate and God is nowhere to be seen. And I'm sure that some of us can relate to Saul's desperate situation. When you lose your job right after you sign that lease, or you don't know how you're gonna be able to both pay rent and put food on the table, or the stock market's tanking and that means your retirement plan's gone too, or the company's in a nosedive. Life can get desperate. And when life doesn't go according to plan, what do you do? What does Saul do? Verse nine. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. What does Saul do? Saul takes matters into his own hands. He says, Samuel's not gonna come. God's not gonna make his plan happen. Fine, I'll make it happen. And that's a problem. Verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. What's Saul saying? He's saying, I I did what God asked me to do. I fought the Philistines, but then God wasn't picking up the phone, and Samuel, you weren't here, you weren't here, and someone had to call God, so I wasn't just going to sit there and do nothing. So Saul says, I forced myself. I, I had to do something. Because Saul worried that if he didn't do something, God wouldn't come through. In Saul's mind, God would only act if he did something. God helps those who help themselves, right? Do you know that's not in the Bible? The sad thing is that if Saul had just waited a couple more minutes, Samuel would have showed up. The clock hadn't run out yet. It was still the seventh day. But Saul had little faith. Saul had trust issues. So with the situation getting more and more out of hand, Saul felt the pressure to be in control, the temptation to not wait on God. But as we're gonna see, that is not what God wanted because all God wanted was for Saul to trust and obey. Verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. 
but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. When things got desperate, Saul ignored God's game plan because Saul felt that he had to be in control. And so Samuel says, God's heart has chosen another man, someone who, unlike you, Saul, will trust and obey God. We know who that person's gonna be. It's David, and his story's gonna come after Saul's. In other words, Saul's kingdom will not continue. Saul will be the last king in his dynasty. Saul's line is ended. And as we'll see, this is an incredible tragedy because as good as King David would have been, there could have been someone even better. Look with me at the next chapter, chapter 14, verse one. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Only after Saul's kingdom is cut off do we learn the true identity of the general that we met for the first time in verse three. Who was that Jonathan who defeated the Philistines with just 1,000 men? Jonathan is Saul's son, the royal prince, the heir apparent, the next in line, or at least he was. Because of his father's disobedience, Jonathan will not inherit the throne. And this is an incredible tragedy because while Saul failed to be the kind of king Israel needed, Saul's son Jonathan would have been a truly incredible king. Look at what he says in verse six. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Here's the big point for today's sermon. Nothing can stop God from saving by many or by few. King Saul had trust issues, but his son did not. God doesn't need us to be in control, to have a big army, to work extra hard. No, instead what God wants is for us to trust that he's got this to trust that God is going to fulfill his promises no matter the odds. Think of what would have happened if Saul had just understood this one simple thing. Samuel told Saul that God was with him, that he'd be okay, and shouldn't that have been enough? If Saul just trusted that God could save Israel even with just 600 men, Saul wouldn't have been so anxious about being outnumbered. Instead, Saul saw his numbers dwindling, and he thought, how is God going to get us out of this one? There is no way. Saul's worrying came out of a lack of trust. But unlike his father, Jonathan sees himself and, and one other guy, and he thinks, oh yeah, that's, that's plenty. That's more than enough. Because <laughs> we got God. And that's the ironic tragedy. Because of Saul's lack of trust, Israel missed out on a king who would have led them well, who would have trusted God to do the impossible, to believe that God would do what he said he would do. And in the end, in today's passage, God works his salvation not through Saul's worrying, but through Jonathan's trust. Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. 
And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after them and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within as it were a half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Against all odds, God came through. God used just two guys to take out 20 enemy combatants and then to throw the entire army, tens of thousands of people, into a panic. And the irony is that meanwhile, back with the Israelites, Saul has no idea. Saul is still trying to figure out a solution. He's crunching the numbers, still trying to figure out how to defeat the Philistines with just 600 men. Verse 17, and Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. All throughout today's passage, Saul is counting. He's counting people instead of counting on God. And so Saul doesn't even notice when God's done a miracle. Because Saul isn't looking at God. Saul is focused only on himself and his own weakness. Bridge, I don't know about you, but a lot of the time, I'm just like Saul. I see desperate, impossible situations, and I'm focused on me, on what I can or cannot do. My, my first reaction is not to go, God, help us. I, how are we going to get out of this? Now, my first reaction is to strategize and to think through options and to play things out in my head to try to figure out, okay, if this happens, I can do this. And, you know, if my bank account goes to zero, then I'll just take out a loan and it'll be okay. And that's, that's how I'm thinking. That's my natural gut reaction. We are all kind of a little bit like Saul. Now, it's not that those things are bad in and of themselves. It's not bad to strategize. But so often, we can get lost in counting our own strengths and weaknesses that we forget to count on God. Bridge, what are you counting on right now? What does your hope rise and fall on? Where are you looking to for help? What's keeping you from counting on God? But I want you to think about these things, these really big things in your life, and I want you to look up, to look at God and to trust that the solution is in his hands. Saul didn't do this. Saul's eyes weren't on God. Saul was trying to do things his way. He was trying to make victory happen on his terms. But God didn't need Saul. Saul doesn't see it at first, but God's plan was already in motion with or without Saul. And only after it becomes too big to miss does Saul realize and join in on the action. Verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was a great confusion. Now the Hebrews had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp. Even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord 
saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Bridget wasn't Saul. It wasn't Jonathan. As verse 23 tells us, it was the Lord who saved Israel that day. God throws the Philistines into such a great panic that they take care of themselves. It doesn't matter that there's more of them. God's going to make them fight themselves. In spite of Saul's lack of trust and his disobedience, God came through. Saul couldn't get in the way of God's plan. God saved Israel. He accomplished victory for Israel. But even after God comes through, Saul still doesn't get it. You might think after all that God just did for Saul, Saul might have learned his lesson and been like, okay, I have trust issues, but you know what? Next time, God's got this. No. As we're going to see, whether things are going bad or good, whether the victory is unsure or completely secured, Saul still worries. Saul still feels the need to be in control of the situation. Saul doesn't trust God. And so Saul takes desperate measures. And this lack of trust is only going to lead to further sorrow for him, his family, and for Israel as a whole. Look at how our passage ends, starting in verse 24. The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Saul's just seen God throw the Philistines into a panic. He saw God do this with, with very little, but now that the victory's all but won, Saul doesn't think his army has what it takes to finish the job. Saul thinks, yes, God did his part, but now it's up to us to do our part. I'm just not so sure we can do it. He thinks if we're going to get the job done, we need to work overtime. We need to go double time, extra hard. So Saul calls the people in on the weekend. He says, he makes a foolish vow. He says, no one eats until I get my revenge or they'll be cursed. And this curse leads to even more terrible consequences for Saul's family. Because in verse 25, we read this. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. And then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. While Saul is putting this curse on the people, while Saul's trying to figure out a way to make victory still happen on his terms, his own son Jonathan, he has no problems. He's out there, he's getting the job done. He's not even listening to his dad. But sadly, that means Jonathan doesn't hear what his dad says. And so when he sees the honey, he eats just a little, and he brings a curse on his own head. And the people are horrified because Jonathan's their guy. Jonathan's just a little frustrated with his dad, and so he calls him out. In verse 29, Jonathan says, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Jonathan gets the tragic irony of the situation. Yet again, Jonathan sees that his father doesn't trust God. Saul doesn't trust that God will finish what he started. 
This curse is just another example of Saul trying to get control over the situation, but ironically, Saul's attempt to control only puts a burden on Israel. As Jonathan puts it, my father has troubled the land. Now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. This could have been it. This could have been the end of the Philistines. They could have wiped out their enemies. They could have removed the threat. But Saul had to be in control. Saul had to try and squeeze victory out of his people. When Saul could have just trusted that God would get it done. Well, further on, Saul finds out that Jonathan broke his command and ate some honey. And so in verse 43, Saul says to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I'll die. It's almost funny. You can feel how frustrated Jonathan is. Really, Dad? Are you serious right now? Fine, guess I'll just die. Verse 44, Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. And then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. And then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Jonathan doesn't die that day. The people see the injustice of Saul's curse. They rightly insist that Jonathan has been working with God. Where Saul failed to trust, Jonathan trusted Jonathan believed God could save Israel with even just a few, and so the people ransomed Jonathan. But nevertheless, Saul's foolish actions have doomed his son. Because of Saul's failure to obey God, Jonathan will never be king. And because of Saul's failure to trust God, the Philistines will live to fight another day, and at the end of 1 Samuel, it's tragically at the hands of the Philistines that Jonathan will die. Saul's curse will be fulfilled. Burge, the story of Saul does not end well. And the sad thing is, it doesn't have to be that way. If Saul had just trusted and obeyed God, he would have defeated the Philistines without any of the worry or anxiety that he had. He would have fully finished the job without placing a burden on his people and on his son, Jonathan. And Jonathan would have kept both his life and his kingdom. If Saul had just learned from his son, if Saul had just trusted God, then things would have been much easier. But he didn't. And so that leaves us with a question for today. Bridge, are we more like Saul or like Jonathan? What do we do when it looks like God won't come through? Where are we putting our trust? When life gets hard, are we holding on to God's promises? Do we have faith that God can save by many or by few? Or are we tempted to take control, to do things our way? Do we have spiritual trust issues? Are we trying to secure God's promises by our own power? But if that's what you're doing, if, if that's how you play, then like Saul, you may still win the battle but you won't get to keep the kingdom. Your plans and your strategies might get you through this situation. You might be able to pay off the loan. You might be able to feed your family, but you'll end up looking more like King Saul than like King Jesus. Because while King Saul failed to be the king Israel needed, God was looking for a king after his own heart. 
And folks, in the short run, that meant King David. But even King David wasn't exactly after God's heart. We're gonna see in this whole book that David is gonna make some mistakes. And his sons will make mistakes and their sons after them and their sons after them until finally there will be a son of David who will be a God after, a king after God's own heart. A king who will trust God, a king who will not fail where Saul did. Because while King Saul did not trust and obey God, King Jesus obeyed the Father even unto death. And why? Because he trusted that even death couldn't stop God's plans. Even death, even the cross. So Bridge, this is our call today. To not be like Saul, but to look at God, to look at Jesus, to put our trust in him. Because God has promised to be with us. He's promised that no matter how bad the situation is, he will not forsake us. God promised this so much that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to be God with us, to die for us. So that as Jesus himself puts it, those who seek to save their life will lose it. But those who lose their life will save it. Bridge, let's pray. God, we confess that we have spiritual trust issues. God, that when the storms roll in, when the battle is underway, we forget that the battle is yours, the battle's the Lord's. God, we, we worry that if we are stuck in this place, that we, if, if we're left to our own devices, that, that there is no hope. And God, that's, we know that's right. That on our own, we can't solve the battle. But God, help us. Help us to remember that we aren't alone. That you're with us. That you have not forsaken us. That you are, you are looking after us. That your promises don't fail. God, thank you. Our king is not like Saul. God, that because of him, we don't have to be stuck in, in these spiritual vicious cycles. God, give us trust. Today, this week, and the next, God, give us trust that however big the enemies are, whoever the Philistines are in our lives, God, that they're no match for you. God, that you can save by many or by few. Help us to trust you. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.